0: Welcome to Help from Future Self.
1: What's happening, Archons? Welcome to Help from Future Self, a conversational KeyForge podcast by and for KeyForge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, but you can call me Alex. I am joined, as always, by my good friend, my coach, my pal. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's the haps, Blake?
0: Hey, man. How's it going?
1: Really good, really good. Man, we had a fun weekend of Keyforge here in Quarantine World. Uh, I, I, why don't you tell the folks about what we did on Saturday?
0: Yeah, so we ended up jamming a uh, a survival, true survival tournament um, with three decks. And uh, I just created for the tournament parameters, the rules were you had to play one deck AOA, one deck from uh, Call of the Archons, and uh, one deck from Worlds Collide, so that all sets were represented and jamming Mm -hmm. against one another. And I I think it made a really interesting proposition for the tournament.
1: It totally did. Um, I think one of the immediate things was that uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, it's very easy for people to just fall into the idea of, I'm just going to bring heat. I'm just going to bring heat. I'm just going to bring heat. And this really forced people outside of that thinking, like people still brought very good decks, but I, at the same time also, it made people not just choose their three best decks. It sort of made them think about what a stable of three decks that represented each individual set would look like and what some possible advantages and disadvantages. What, what was your philosophy for choosing decks for this, Blake? I'm curious because I had a specific one in mind when I picked mine out.
0: Um, mine's kind of silly. So um, I want to tell just one story. As we had someone mm-hmm. in our group, Tyson... And uh, he actually used decks that... I don't think he used any decks he owned. He used um, two from our Help From Future Self uh, community pool, and then he borrowed one of my AOA decks. And he did not choose, like, really high SAS decks. He actually chose decks based on a card pool of certain cards he was looking for because he thought at the end of the day, the biggest obstacle you would have would be facing against a Worlds Collide deck. So he mm-hmm. took a pr- um, an approach of... What I want every deck to have to have cards that are going to be very potent against a world's collide meta, and I thought that was like when he explained this to me, he told me before the tournament started, I thought that was a quite a smart approach because I had a feeling like most people's third, like third deck was going to be a world's collide deck, like that Mm -hmm. was what I made the assumption of, Uh, and I think that was the case for the most part. Um, but for me personally, um, this tournament, the prize pool was the premium prize kit. Which featured a Lord Invidious mat for first and second, as mm-hmm. well as a uh, disc which had a Oxtet on one side and Lord Invidious on the other. Um, one of those cardboard chain trackers, as well as a deck box. And so, with that theme in mind, I had discs in every single deck I played. That was mine, and not only that, but I represented discs in its uh, its most iconic cards, so to speak, in a way. Like I had my World's Collide deck was a L- Lord Invidious deck. My um, AOA deck was a Restring Guntas deck with a double unlock gateway. Uh, And then my um, Coda deck was a triple control the weak deck. So I thought I was representing kind of the iconic cards of uh, DIS in my process. Granted, they were some of my top decks, but I made sure they all had DIS. Like I was debating going for a Coda rush deck, but it didn't have DIS, So that kind of made me think, oh, let's go with this uh, control the weak deck instead.
1: I, in fact, did go with a Coda, diss, or a Coda rush deck. Rather. Um, my philosophy for it was that I wanted um, to try and get through the first three or four rounds as fast as possible in the hopes that people were putting some of their weaker stuff up front. And I felt like the best chance for me to get deeper into the tournament was for me to bust out Coda Rush, because Coda Rush is one of those, you need the specific tool set to counter it. And I didn't feel like people were putting those kinds of decks up front. Um, What we were seeing was a lot of people were putting what they felt like were their weakest decks up front, which makes sense, right? Like if you're going Mm -hmm. three decks, you want to save your best heat for the very last, you know, if you have sort of a weaker deck amongst the three that you've chosen, let's say you don't have a lot of AOA, you had to choose from the AOA you had a hold of, you know, it makes sense to put that up front. And, uh, you know, those Coda Rush decks still did very well for me. Um, I just ran up against a deck that had the right answers at the right time after a couple rounds. Then I switched over to a more combo-y AOA deck. Um, once again, not a deck that's ultra consistent, but I still got two rounds deep, deeper into the tournament because of it. Um, Just because once again, if you don't know how to play against it, you can sort of pull off some some sneaky wins. And lastly, like a lot of other people, I kept my my big WC heat deck for the final deck. And I didn't even make it through one round with it because I ran up against somebody who was running a much better and much hotter WC deck. Um, I don't regret my choices at all. I think all of them were made for good reasons and they basically did what they wanted to do. Um, there was good matchups. Uh, Got to give a huge shout out to Daniel B, um, our prime winner here in Vancouver for one of the prime events that we held, who also took down this tournament and went, I think, eight rounds undefeated with a deck he borrowed from you, Blake, that he had not played more than two or three times before the start of the tournament.
0: Yeah, which is funny because that deck he was using was my original sealed survival champion deck. Like I won a sur- my very first survival tournament with that exact deck, which was kind of funny. And he took it and I played him in one of the rounds and he played it like masterfully. Like I, I knew when he was taking this deck, like based on the player he is, like I was not shocked. And I knew he was going to like see all the lines that are like super fun in that deck. And he just played it perfectly. Like I, mm-hmm. I think I went up against him in round three, I think I, I faced him. Yeah and um and the game was like somewhat close but it was hard to say um I looking back I thought so for me I think survival the the decks you choose are not as relevant almost as the order in which they are played mm-hmm. cuz I I'd think agree. there is a lot deeper strategy in this type of format um, to the sequence in which you're playing your decks for various different reasons um for the first one like you know how you said the rush decks and stuff like that you went first I actually think those decks are better suited near the end. Reason being is um, there's a situation that occurs, and I think Frank is a testament to this. That he basically went like like one after the another decks gone, and then he played his his last deck in the third round. And he just took it all the way to the finals and he just lost to Daniel. And so he got a lot of reps and a lot of familiarity playing with that deck. And I think in survival, one of the pitfalls is if you go really deep with one deck and then you suddenly switch up. And for example, if it's a very differently played deck, that can throw kind of a, a monkey wrench in the works because you're now adapting to a new deck. You may have been used to playing a different thing, expecting cards. So you're now kind of almost starting cold with that. And I think that's a, a syndrome that exists within survival is the, the switch up suddenly in the late rounds mm-hmm. and someone else who who lost early and then has been going deep since then, that can occur. And uh, I kind of regret putting the deck that I did last, which was my triple control of the week deck. I w- almost wish I had done it first and played my AOA last because of how familiar and, and the toolkit that it has against Worlds Collide decks. So uh, it didn't help as well that my Control the Week deck, I literally opened my hand against, I was playing against JD, and my opening hand was two Control the Weeks to start with. Oof. So I was like, oh, I'm mulliganing that. And of course I mulligan into two Control the Weeks. <laughs> Naturally. And then proceeded in the next two turns to draw my third Control the Week. And it just was like, that deck, if you don't get those uh, mid to late, or, or at least like have them spaced out, that way, it really doesn't help the deck because it has ways of storing them. Like, I have Master Plan. I have uh, Lab Work so I can archive them. None of those came, and it just was like I was chaining myself because I couldn't use them. It wasn't effective at that time.
1: Yeah, I, I have this philosophy about multiple control of the weeks. Um, Like, I have a, a deck with uh, multiple control of the weeks that I've done very, very well with. It's the one that I played at the last prime when I made it to Final Four. It's the one that I played when I won the store championship. And my philosophy with it is that the best time the absolute best time to play Control the Week is in a scenario in which you stall your opponent from getting their second key, you go over the top for your second key and build momentum going into the final key. That is my philosophy with Control the Week, and I found it to be a very, very effective one. I know having it in reserve so that you can use it to stop them from stopping you from forging your last key oftentimes is is a is a very effective strategy, but for me it's I all about to that that momentum going into that third key. I love using control of the week to leave somebody behind and force their hand to try and really go all out to stop you. Um, You can force some really bad plays and and inopportune uh, 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 play that way.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I also had the fun thing of like I don't know I was I was playing against dirty decks in a way because I mean there was one game when I'm lord invidious just stealing everyones stuff and not letting them get on board <laughs> and call her and then and then another in the first round I played against um adam and i restaurant gun locked him before either of us forged our first key and I felt really bad for that because he'd never seen restaurant guntis before so Ooh. like that was his first experience with it was in this tournament and getting locked like like when I was forging my first keys, like I have all shadows. I can't do anything because I said you can't play shadows because I knew that was the way to like take me off check was my logic, not because of like anything else really. And so he got that. And then obviously I never got to abuse my control of the weak side, but it can, it can be pretty disgusting. Um, I mean, like I, I don't know with you having your, your disc, but you know, like, do you ever do like you, you do one control of the weak, establish a disc board. And then you play your second one the second time and you utilize your disc board. Have you done that one before?
1: Yes. So you play one control the week, you build the disc board, you play the second control the week, hopefully for them to have very minimal amount of, of stuff they can do. And then the capper that I love is Hecatomb on top of that.
0: Oh, yeah, that's beautiful.
1: So, you know, you build the disc board, you reap out with the disc board, you Hecatomb for a big burst of amber can be real real hot real fun yeah um i mean adam's experience i'm sure was 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 not his favorite but also it's one of those things where sometimes if you're not familiar with a card when you're surveying your opponent's deck always ask that's that's oftentimes a good policy i
0: find yeah it's, i mean in a lot of big tournaments people won't say anything but we were having a friendly local so gladly would have said anything about any cards and i think mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. did but anyways, um, I guess we got to move on to the main topic now, don't we?
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit. Oh, sync- just before that, oh.
0: uh, just a shout out uh, so everyone knows there is a KIP Survival Tournament this Saturday and Sunday on KIPtournaments.com. So if you're interested in testing out your own theories and your own strategy for playing that, uh, just go to, to that site and uh, sign up. It's going to be a fun tournament. I think a lot of a lot of Heat players will be there.
1: Sweet. Um, If you listened to the episode last week, you'll know that we spent it talking about Untamed, and we thought it would be fun to keep the momentum going on that and talk a little bit about Sanctum. So both Blake and I went back to look at sort of the Sanctum card set from the uh, Call of the Archons and from the Age of Ascension and really sort of think about what it is that that faction, that house represents for Keyforge. Um, One of the things that struck me, Blake, and I'm interested in your perspective on this, is looking at just the coda card pool man they were a well-rounded house
0: yeah it's you know what it is is like do we feel this way now because we have more knowledge because of future like further sets that have released especially worlds collide because that's kind of how i'm feeling about this is it's like we're talking about reminiscing and the evolution and since we're now actually looking at them individually we're really i feel like uh, it's like our own experience with the game and how it's evolved. We're, we're now able to pinpoint, like, this is actually really strong. So we're thinking about more than just what originally existed. And I completely agree with you. I mean, it had it had ways to do Crazy Burst. It had ways, like, to, if you were behind in one way or another, it would help you catch up. Um, thinking of, like, The Glorious Few. Uh, who is it? Uh, not Duma the Martyr. Um,
1: oh, uh, Numquid the Fair.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like there were ways like like you could catch up. And I found and I think that's so interesting in the Coda side like it just had these these tools to allow you to like to work. And the funny thing is like Numquad the fair in Coda like honestly pretty useless card a lot of the time because people weren't building crazy boards, but now you can get behind on board against a world's collide and that could be so potent.
1: Yeah, the Numquid is the ultimate answer to My opponent has a big board of dinos and just hit me with an axiom of grisk. And now they've got, you know, six creatures and I have none. Well, here comes numquid to even the odds because numquid just keeps going off. Numquid's power is literally destroy an enemy creature, repeat this card's effect if your opponent still controls more creatures than you. So that goes through wards, it goes through everything.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, if you have no creatures
1: and you drop a numquid against another board, they have no creatures. It's the ultimate, you know, one of the ultimate one-sided board clears. But yeah, like just looking at all the crazy ways that you could get amber in the uh, in, in Call of the Archons using them. Like you had, um, you know, sort of very straightforward things like Virtuous Works just gives mm-hmm. you three amber straight up. You know, you had uh, one stood against many, me- or not one stood against many, glorious few that would give you these big amber bursts if you have a couple of artifacts out you could get a ton off of Oath of Poverty. Oath of Poverty, if even you have one artifact, if you sacrifice it with Oath of Poverty, that's three amber, straight up. If you had two, that's five amber.
0: Yeah, you love this card. I know. I it's, do. You're, it's you're a champion of Oath of Poverty for sure.
1: I totally am. But it's not just the amber burst. Oh, Cleansing Wave, another really great way to gain a lot of amber. It also had wicked good amber control. Um, the king of which, of course, is Doorstep to Heaven. A card... That literally says that I don't care how much amber you have, you're going down to five. And unless you've managed to bring down your key cost to five, you're not forging, which is incredible. I mean, it's both sided, but they're very easy ways to play around that.
0: Not only that, there's also like it gets around all the things that prevent other ways of Ember control happening, like anti-steel doesn't apply to this. Mm -hmm. Things that say captured Ember or Ember that's stolen is taken from the common supply, like post-Pixies, that doesn't apply to this. Like it gets around all those things that stop a lot of forms of Ember control, mainly in the Shadows house.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not only that, it was also like the first real board house in Mm -hmm. that so many of its creatures were big bodies. They reinforced one another. There was lots of ways that you could use them to protect one another. There was lots of ways in which they would interact with one another. So, you know, Grey Monk gives armor. You know, uh, let's see here. Uh, You know, Bulwark gives armor to the people who are next to it. Champion Anaphiel has Taunt, you know. And then, you know, on top of that, not only does it protect itself and protect one another, it also had lots of capture as well. Now... The big issue I think and this is one of the reasons why a lot of people look past Sanctum not our friends at Sanctimonia certainly but a lot of people look past Sanctum in the Coda era was that they didn't have a ton of answers for the dominant dominant meta and the dominant meta in that era was big steel big burst. There was not a whole lot that you could do with most Sanctum layouts that would contend with I just played an untamed turn where I got 12 amber or I just played a shadows turn where I stole 6 amber off of you. What what no, what it's did say Sanctum- Sanctum have in-house that could prevent that. Well, I mean, they had the vault keeper who would keep you from getting stolen from, but he was a rare, unless I'm mistaken.
0: No, you're right. I, I wish that would have almost been in an uncommon slot. I think that may have uh, been made Sanctum a lot more potent and actually it would have really changed, I think, the meta with shadows. Like if you suddenly have the people are running things where your amber can't be stolen more frequently, I think it would have completely changed the way the game was mm-hmm. played.
1: And certainly wouldn't have unbalanced anything. I mean, steel was such an incredibly powerful thing in the code era before the Nerf on bait and switch that, you know, it was pretty much the whole of, you know, the, 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 the being able to counteract steel in any way, shape, or form was, was a huge deal.
0: Um, I'm also thinking like uh, about ember control. And I think people, because steel was so potent, people did not care about capture. They're like, capture is like fine because it works, but it's actually, you're just storing my ember for me. Mm. But now in this day and age, like, Ember sitting on creatures is a much more common thing that happens now, and you're not seeing the other form of uh, steel happening as frequently. It's more like stuff is sitting on creatures, and guess what? There's an actual advantage to having that happen now, uh, such as Axiom of Grisk. And I think that looking back, you're, you're viewing it differently now as a result.
1: Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, like we said you know big boards weren't a thing in the coda era big boards are a thing now and when you look at the tool set that was available to sanctum in the coda era it it's really interesting to port that over into the the game as we understand it today having tools like blinding light to you know stun all of your opponent's starlights or all of your opponents saurians you know stuff like that is is incredibly useful now a, a, a card like glorious few is so much more deadly when you're playing in a big board world.
0: Yeah, can you imagine like glorious few, like red alert sort of thing? Like you, like those. It's like it's like a ember version of red alert if you think about it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is really cool.
1: So going over into AOA, um, it was one of the best houses in AOA. I don't think there's any question.
0: I honestly, like when I was doing this, like looking back at it, I was like, man, I think them taking out sanctum what's like it was gaining momentum and now it suddenly became like pulled I think it was an interesting decision because you could argue that other houses were kind of taking a road that was like like I think Mars being pulled was was like no one was really like oh are you serious like there's obviously the diehard um Mars fans out there Uh, my man Jordan who uh, we'll be having on the show in the future uh but like honestly I think that a lot of people are like, that's okay. Because like the greatest thing about Mars that happened was the Martian generosity key abduction. Aside from that, no one really was like, oh no, Mars is gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 definitely. And and then AOA, like they just got so much momentum and you weren't sat, you weren't like, oh no, there's Sanctum in this. Seriously, you were like, oh, Sanctum's in here. That means they're going to be able to put in uh, a few different kinds of work for this. Because I think their Ember Control was, was, um, was the second strongest in the whole set, in, in the AOA set would you agree? Uh
1: yeah, I would probably agree. Looking at the card set, um they had a couple of tools that I think were absolutely incredible. Um first off, I want to talk about the fact that they had the Gray Rider, who I think was their own little version of of sort of the Ganger chieftain, but that ability to play fight reap and cause neighboring creatures to fight was so incredibly useful. Um it gave I, you-
0: I actually wanted to talk about that in this yeah. cuz this is the first time we're going to be able to touch on that and it's it's about AoA because AOA was the set that introduced like the first instance where rule of sixing was happening and it was happening a lot with many different cards. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have the first off, like if you, if you manage to play Dusk Witch turn one and no one deals with it, and then you drop the Sky Booster Squadron and you're just reaping, playing, reaping, playing, reaping, playing until you hit the rule of six. And then of course there is, which will obviously go into great detail in the future, the, the, the Gangernaut combo, which everyone knows and then you had also the Grey Rider. So these these situations where you have, if your opponent has an empty board, you are going to be rule of sixing. It's a very interesting thing. And the Grey Rider was definitely a big part of that when you get two of them in a deck.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And because it was in the common slot, that happened all mm-hmm. the time. Yep. I really also love some of the way that they made capture work um, for Sanctum in this set. So you had Obadi the Grim. Obadi the Grim is literally a better version of Charette from House Dis from 100%. Call of the Archons. Because Obad, not only are they a bit more powerful because they have one armor on top of four, they capture three like Charette does, and then every time they reap, they discard one. So that amber is just out of the game. It's gone. So it was mm-hmm. so advantageous. Add to that cards like Baron Menjevin, who you could do mass capture with or like oh, clutch yeah. capture with if you needed to. And Barrister Joya, who honestly is almost broken. Like Barrister Joya's power is enemy creatures cannot reap if you don't have an answer for that like it it completely derails tons of decks you know if you don't have a board clear direct removal some way to get at this five power, one armor creature who in this set might also be protected by, you know, a creature with taunt. Maybe your opponent has them on a flank and they've also got Hadroth's wall on it, giving her extra power. Like it is bananas how good uh, that card is. And it was all over the place, right? Like it was not uncommon to see it. It was an uncommon card that showed up all the time.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I'm excited to see that back in mass mutations. I know it's been announced, which is super cool. Um, and then in line, I guess, since we're talking about Barrister Joy, you you obviously have to talk about Cermeros as well because mm-hmm. that creates that interesting proposition where when Cermeros hits the board, you are now making it so, yeah, you can reap and do whatever you want, but you're actually not advancing yourself towards your key in doing so. You're just storing it somewhere else. So I think that is uh, really interesting. And then if you have a card like um, Equalize, so that's on Cermeros, and now suddenly you distribute that Ember amongst like six creatures, that's a really powerful combo.
1: Yeah, not to mention you also had Mother Northel providing you mm-hmm. with the ability to move one Amber from friendly creatures to your pool, which is really cool. And then there was like a bunch of, once again, great utility cards, I think, across the board. You had things like Free Markets, which which I know, think was
0: the replacement of Virtuous Works. They decided yeah. like Virtuous Works was too much and Free Markets was had the potential to go more, but I think was more balanced most of the time.
1: I think most of the time I get two Amber off of a Free Markets. I don't know why it is, but sometimes it always just feels like I get two Amber off of free markets, maybe three if I'm lucky. And then yeah. every once in a blue moon, you get like six or something like that. But, you know, you had that for a great burst card. Um, I already mentioned Hadroth's Wall is just like this really useful card, um, especially if you get in the deck where you're running Brobnar and a Grump Buggy. Um, but on top of that, there's also Proclamation 34-6-E, which is a oh, fantastic so card because... It just sits there making your opponent's life more difficult.
0: Yep, I would agree.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it was just, it was a cool house in AOA, but it also kind of suffered from a lot of the AOA problems, which were that games felt long. They felt grindy. Because of the way that capture worked in Sanctum, oftentimes you would end up with these Sanctum versus Sanctum games where you're just constantly like capturing each other's amber, making things more difficult. Games are going to time. You know, you're not really forging keys as much as you want. And it slowed the game down in such a way that I feel like you know, it it made it seem less fun during that era. And you and I, I think, have come around a lot on AOA in terms of, you know, we were kind of sick of it. Now we love returning to those AOA decks, but part of us loving returning to those AOA decks, and especially the Sanctum ones, is that we're not playing against other AOA a lot of the time. We're bringing these decks that have all these cool powers into a world where, you know, there's different things going on. WC is a different meta, and AOA plays differently than it did during the AOA era.
0: What's what's kind of funny is all the decks I'm like actually playing now from AOA are sanctum decks. Like it's kind of funny. Like all the ones I'm revisiting, like my top one, my top AOA deck has Sanctum in it. Um the one that Daniel ran is is got Sanctum in it, and I really like that deck as well. Uh and then the Italian deck you got me that I've been jamming also has Sanctum in it. So I've just been noticing like that is like kind of a key component. It's the logo sanctum uh side of things and then X House uh, a lot of the times is is what I'm enjoying from the aoa period because i feel like i mean everyone knows that the logos in aoa was like you had if you had logos you knew you didn't have ember control in that house and so you had sanctum which actually had a lot of ember control uh, in different ways which made it really a nice balance to that mm. side of things so um, i'm finding i really like the combination of those two houses in in aoa world yeah totally And uh, I'm really excited to see how Mass Mutation comes back because it's looking like there's going to be some serious Sanctum heat in this next set. I
1: I should hope so. I mean, they've taken a set off now. Presumably designers have had some time to really tweak them and figure out where they fit into a world that has dinos. And if we're being honest, you know, dinos inherited a lot of Sanctum's power. Like we're talking Mm -hmm. about big armored bodies. We're talking about capture as an important mechanic. I feel like we're going to see some new tricks from Sanctum, and I cannot wait to find out what they are.
0: 100%.
1: So, every episode of Help from Future Self ends with a segment where we give a little bit of advice, something that one of us uh, wants to share from some games that we've been playing recently. Sometimes it's real general, sometimes it's real specific. Blake has one for us. The segment is called... Help Help from Future Self. self. Take it away, Coach.
0: All right, so this... Lesson for my future self actually comes from a game I played the other night against my man, Scuzzy Gruen. Whoa! Uh, he, he was uh, playing this deck. We were both jamming AOA decks, oddly enough, since we're on this topic. And oddly enough, I was playing a Sanctum. And he had this crazy sting combo where he was taking my Ember and he was getting really up there and I knew this was a problem. And I had a doorstep to heaven plus a couple the Nepent seeds. And um, I had this moment where I could have... Basically, played my Nepenth Seed, got my doorstep in hand, even though it was out of house, and then saved it for the next turn and had it. And instead, I went through the play of, you know what, i rather draw one extra card, so I'll leave it there. And when I looked over his deck list looking for artifact control, I completely was just looking for anything that destroyed or used artifacts, and I completely overlooked Alex's Grasping Vines, which is, I think, a cornerstone of that deck because it lifts his sting... And then it also lifted my Nepency, which meant I could no longer grab my doorstep. He had 12 Ember during that turn as a result. And the potency that doorstep would have had the next turn it passed to me is gone because I'd have to pl- spend a turn playing Nepent seed. He forges, and then it's just not the same. And so the lesson here, folks, is a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And so I should have gone with that first instinct of just returning it to my hand and uh, taking that one less card instead of just allowing that moment to happen and also pay attention to your decklist for other your opponent's decklist for other things um i'm definitely become really sloppy with looking at decklist during this uh crucible time and i'm trying to get way better at uh not looking at the decklist during games take the time at the front to mm-hmm. know what exists and then you don't have the tendency to look at it as the game progresses uh when we were playing our tournament and we were honor system to not look at the deck list uh, i was finding myself itching to look at their deck list and i did not and the fact that that feeling existed meant that i had developed a bad habit so uh bird in the hand is worth two in the bush that's what we're going with today
1: it's a good lesson to learn and for, for what it's worth that was a fun game and i enjoyed playing with you pal
0: yeah it was great i hate i got to pull off my combo at the start and that's all i wanted buy night rupture helper bot choda i mean once that <laughs> happens uh, i'm good <laughs> It's such a good combo. I love it.
1: One of those hot Italian decks.
0: Uh, yeah, thank you, sir.
1: Hey, no problem at all. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at podcast. Shout out to Kip for putting a Help from Future Self icon you can use to represent as your player icon if you're playing on Kip tournaments right now. Uh, my name is Scuzzy Gruen. You can find me on Kip and on the TCO and on Instagram and on Twitter under that name. Where can they find you, Blake? You
0: can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram is the best place to reach out. And uh, also uh, you'll find me online, jamming games with the Boulevard handle. I got a couple going right now just because I had some issues on my Kip account. But uh, please reach out. Please say hi. If you're a fan of the podcast, uh, let us know. Uh, We love uh, jamming games with people who are listeners. So uh, please do speak up if uh, you're jamming against us.
1: Absolutely. Also, and this is not my news to tell, you're going to hear a cool announcement from my guy, Blake, in the next couple of weeks. That's super exciting. And I'm super proud of him for for this particular thing that he's he's starting to do. So no spoilers, but I'm oh, sure it's going to be amazing. I'll say it.
0: <laughs> so so um. This week, you should be able to find on the FFG website an article that I wrote, and I'm hoping to be doing more moving forward. But this first one uh, should be coming out this week. If not, it's already out then in the next couple days. So uh, I'm really excited. This this uh, article actually has a lot to do with the series that we are currently on. And it's actually a very uh, personal article for me that I had a lot of emotion when writing, very positive emotion. But it's uh I'm I'm hoping you all will give it a read and uh and take it to Harks. It's it's uh I think it's a special one.
1: I can't wait. All right. It's been yet another week from Help from Future Self. So thankful to have this game and this community to, to help keep us balanced and centered during, you know, a difficult time. We'll be at you again so very, very soon. Until then, stay forged.